Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us on the Financial Pathway Podcast with Nate Skellett, where we discuss important financial questions and give you practical advice to guide you on your financial journey. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a review. You can also follow the Financial Pathway page on Facebook for more helpful financial tips and videos. All right, so I got Jeremy to Spain here with me. Been looking forward to this conversation. Jeremy, thanks for joining me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You're in Washington State. That's right. Yes. I'm the pastor at Bible Baptist Church in Port Orchard, Washington. I'm from the area um, Edmonds, just across the way from the peninsula. Grew up here in the Northwest, and I'm the lead pastor here at Bible Baptist Church. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, so born and raised Washington State? Yeah. Born and raised, as I mentioned, Edmonds, Washington, just across from the peninsula. So uh, just been here probably, I guess it's been since 2015. Gotcha. Awesome. Nice. Seahawks fan? Uh, you know, I don't get a lot of time to watch sports. I, I appreciate it. I am a fan. I just don't get to watch sports as much as I would uh, like to, I guess. So not as fanatical as most people. No. Seattle area. Um, yeah. So um, we got to meet in person just a couple months ago. We had communicated via social media before yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but I think what, what connected us is we have some overlap in our background. So you have a background in finance and then you're also a pastor. So tell us a little bit about your background on the finance side of things. Sure. Yeah. Right after high school, I had um, a bit of a desire to go into finance. So I didn't go to college out of high school. I had intentions of actually going to Maranatha at the time and studying business and possibly getting a minor in pastoral theology. A couple of weeks before that, I decided to stay home. Um, and at the time, I was really debating about whether I wanted to get married. Uh, my, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, she went off to college. We were going to meet together at Maranatha. And I just had this aha moment that, boy, you know, I really ought to think about buying a home because college was expensive then. It's so expensive now. And we started thinking it would be great. Maybe we should get married. We should buy a home and not go into debt right away. So I've already started thinking about just the long-term planning process. Even as a high schooler, my dad allowed me to help him with his 401k. I just had a knack for finance early on. Read a lot of books. Didn't really know Wait, what I, if- I, I have to pause. Yeah. When you were in high school, you helped your dad yeah. with his 401k. That's right. He was he trying to figure out how to me. invest? <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah, that's, so- uh, that's unusual. Yeah. And I appreciate it because it gave me the opportunity to know the ins and the outs of mutual funds, how they work, um, and really just the beginning. So I started asking a lot of questions about what financial consultants do, advisors. Uh, I remember going into a Merrill Lynch office at the age of 18 uh, in the Linwood area and said, hey, what do I need to do to be a financial advisor? Uh, I recall when I was about 19 years old, I started calling financial advisors and I was able to get in touch with one in Bellevue. Mm-hmm. And he called me back maybe two weeks later. He said, hey, I'm so sorry. I didn't return your call. 
Uh, I see that you have some questions about uh, financial practice. Uh, maybe give me a call when you have a moment. He called me down to his office uh, and we had lunch together. And he said, I'd be more than willing to show you a little bit about uh, finance. If you're interested, I'm looking for someone to call leads that are Boeing retirees. And of course, you know, the greater Seattle area yeah. is prevalent for, um, for Boeing. And retirees at that time, they'd have 30, 35, 40 plus years of service. They would be coming out with not only a nice pension, but of course, you know, 500 to a 500,000 to a million dollars in their 401k was not unusual for someone that had served that long. And, you know, I started out making calls for, um, you know, different kind of uh, meetings that he would have, seminars, and I would start uh, having these, these potential clients come and essentially started doing really well with that early on. By the time I was about 21, I was a, a licensed mutual fund broker. Uh, he allowed me to help kind of reallocate accounts, meet with clients, do follow-up calls, and just gained a lot of exposure early on in my 20s. Hmm. Uh, even now, did what, a lot. What year was this? This would have, yeah, this would have been back in 2002, maybe 2003, mm -hmm. 2003. Yeah, okay. Gotcha. Right. Uh, this was also a difficult time because it was right after the dot-com boom. Right. Uh, and not only the boom, but of course it hit bottom. And so I was cleaning up a lot of the bloodbath of that in conversation. So I learned not only how to invest, but also how to have hard conversations with clients about uh, complete losses, which was also helpful because uh, even today it helped me to recognize that whenever you invest in something, you ought to look at the potential downside. You know, you upside potential with downside protection. And I learned that quite a bit. I learned about asset allocation, about not being overexposed to risk. Uh, and I also did a lot of trading. We did a lot of active trading. We pro you know, this, this advisor had about $250, $300 million under management, which is quite a bit of a portfolio for um, an independent practitioner. Yes. So, it was, uh, it was a great experience. Uh, in that time, I really felt like I was still called to ministry early on in my teens. I still felt called to ministry. So there was this struggle going inside. Uh, so I, I did go back, do some more um, schooling, you know, in theology. And uh, through that time, I ended up working at Wells Fargo Bank. Uh, after that, I, I worked at Key Bank, even in transition, coming here to be uh, the pastor. I worked part-time as the associate as this pastor was transitioning out uh, into retirement. I, uh, I'm, you know, on my own free will decided even after being out of finance for, you know, seven plus years, I went back and started managing a bank, got relicensed mm -hmm. and uh, just was very fulfilling in that way in helping people. So yeah. I have uh, quite a background, I would say about 10 years in finance, 10, um, I guess, 12, 13 years full-time ministry. Mm -hmm. And a lot that goes on in between there. But that entire time, I've really spent some time in uh, trying to understand personally as well as professionally how finance works in ministry in real life. Yeah, that's great. Now, you're, you're just full-time in the pastor now, right? Not that's in, correct. Okay. So when, correct. When, when did you make that transition away from the, the bank? Sure. I mentioned in 2015 that I came here to 
Port Orchard as um, and understand that I'd be transitioning into being the pastor. In 2018, I guess I was with Key for a few years and um, I decided to transition into the full-time pastor at once the pastor here officially uh, retired. Uh, so we, we, were, we were blessed to be able to do that. Church takes care of us well and uh, it, it just the demand on time, the size of our congregation, things that are going on in this season of life seems to be the best move for us. Gotcha. That's great. Yeah. And, and as part of knowing a little bit of your story and your background in finance that, that said, man, we, we got to talk, we got to do an episode together because having been on the inside, mm-hmm. you've seen the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah. Um, and you've got a unique perspective because you were behind the scenes on the investment side of things, but then mm-hmm. also behind the scenes on the bank side of things. And you can That's tell right. people those are two different worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pe- when people say, oh, I'm in finance, that can mean a lot of things. That's right. Um, and there's, there's a, you know, somebody could be in a, spend their life in finance and actually really not know anything about investing or, or vice versa, be, live their entire life in investing and not really know too much about retail banking or the lending side of things. There's going to be overlap, but as far as like having expertise. So coming from a world of finance, now into pastorate, now full-time pastorate, have you learned anything along the way from the world of finance that you feel like's helped you in your role now? Sure. I mean, absolutely. I would say that as a pastor, I recognize that God had used my experience um, throughout that time. Even, I'll be honest with you, I think I stayed in finance for a longer period of time than I thought I should have at the time whether it was because I was struggling with the decision to go into ministry, what that would look like, schooling, preparation. Uh, and I've just learned it's, it's like our God. It's so typical of what he does is he'll take all of our experiences, whether they were a good decision, bad decision, unsure. And you recognize God packages all of that and he has a purpose for it. And looking back, I'm thankful that I've had that experience because it certainly has helped me as a pastor uh, to uh, move forward with making decisions for our church in helping our members in, um, in really having a broader understanding of how things work practically. We understand that finance is uh, not only a communication issue in marriages, uh, it's a communication uh, issue, just generally speaking. Uh, for those that maybe aren't even married, they just, they're not even communicating with their banks. They're not communicating with people that they owe. Uh, and it just becomes a disaster. And it's something that people would rather just ignore instead of move forward with. And this is something that uh, I think no doubt has helped put my mind at ease because uh, I, I know better. And because I know better, I feel like I have a greater accountability to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I'm thankful for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point you bring up, how we, our, our relationship with money is a funny thing. And sometimes we, we opt for the bury our head in the sand approach. Mm. And things don't get any better on, on their own. That's right. Um, so being, so I, I have a little bit of experience working in a, a branch, a bank branch, um, as a banker, not as a manager. Mm-hmm. But... Um, 
it's an interesting, I, I think the banking industry is a lot different than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's definitely really like the, today, the Bank of America and Capital Ones, they want everything to be online. They don't want yeah. people in locations. Capital One doesn't even have locations. It's like, no, you do it all on your app, on the, you know, on, on the computer, at the ATM. But, um, but some banks are very much, and, and banks traditionally were very much a, a community space. It was very much a relationship-built business. So I think you were probably trying to navigate that line as a branch manager to where it's like, okay, we, we build relationships with people, but at the same time, we're trying to utilize technology. Mm-hmm. Um, what I mean, in that sense, overseeing a small branch and you know seeing people on a regular basis, do you feel like there are parallels with pastoring um, it, in, in, in that? Does that make sense? Certainly. Yeah. You know, the local church, no doubt, is an organization that requires financial oversight. So uh, we need to understand that. And unfortunately, I don't think too many uh, Bible colleges or universities spend much time in teaching pastors the importance of the fundamentals of that oversight, because it is organization. And it's not essential, of course, that a pastor has a financial background like myself or maybe someone like you, but someone on the team should be responsible for helping the pastor and the team to steward the contributions that come in. Um, You know, it's unfortunate because I see that pastors feel the need to retire preaching in the pulpit because they've not planned for the retirement years. Mm -hmm. Um, What they often forget about is they think that retirement is all about investing to save up this big nest egg, like traditionally, uh, it's often taught, you know, I I see that quite a bit by financial advisors. It's pretty easy to uh, just throw up some projections and say, if you were to save this amount of money over this period of time, this is what you'd have. And people think that's what retirement's all about. The reality is, is that if you're not healthy and if you don't plan for unexpected health or disability, things to that nature, that could, that could actually be an issue, you know? So that's a problem. Pastors suddenly, you know, they turn 60 years old and they have a health concern and they realize I didn't save any money to help myself. Now, even worse than that is they didn't even consider their spouse. You know, they didn't consider the situation that could have happened had they, uh, you know, been, uh, you know, seriously injured or have health issues. And they're not even considering ministry transition. If they love their ministry and they want to see the church move forward, boy, then they have to be thinking about the fact that they can't just be 85 years old and be preaching the pulpit just to generate income. When often it's guised as, you know, men of God don't retire. And I'm not even suggesting, I would say one thing that I have learned over the years is that, uh, you know, we have this functional kind of rule in our house. You know, when we talk about finances is, honey, our kids are going to grow up and they're going to be gone. Let's enjoy as much time with our kids. And if we have the opportunity to spend the money and we have the money, let's do it. I'm all about spending money just as much as I am about saving money. I don't want to be 70 years old with $3 million plus in the bank and look back and say, we had no memories, but we scrimped and we saved. And I think that they're for the Christian mm-hmm. I think there's this misnomer because we bought into this idea that to have an enormous multi-million dollar nest egg is what gives us security. But we know that financial freedom 
is actually not the objective of the Christian life. Now, as an American, as you know, income earners, boy, if we have the ability to do that, we ought to. We ought to take advantage of it. We ought to be great uh, givers and things of that nature. But uh, we shouldn't think that financial freedom is an objective of the Christian life because it really is not. It's just a privilege that we get, you know, and while we can earn money, let's, let's be good savers and stewards of it. Yeah, that's really well put. Um, yeah, we got we to gotta go back back it up and say, okay, why, why am I doing this? Why am I trying to accumulate money and save for the future? Is it just so I can just kick back and, you know, spend the rest of my days on a beach somewhere and, and take it easy and, and just, you know, be a consumer now. Um, there's a, there's a guy, his name is Carl Richards. He, he's, um, a fairly well known in the financial advisor space as far as a communications expert. He does all of these, uh, drawings, Sharpie drawings that are very simple, but, you know, powerful to convey a, convey a powerful thought. One of my favorite of his is it's a Venn diagram with two overlapping circles and it's, um, uh, experiences and people you love are the two circles and where they overlap. He, he writes, spend the money. Mm. In other words, really at the end of the day, why, why are we making the decisions we are to save or spend the money? What, what's it for? And sometimes, right. We just get in this mode of like, well, I'm just, I'm saving for retirement, but why, 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 why am I being stingy or passing up opportunities to spend time with my spouse, my kids to experience something that will be a lifelong memory just for, you know, just to, to penny pinch for mm. something in the future. Um, I, I want to back up for a second because um, you've been in finance. You understand the importance of financial propriety um, being very, um, transparent and having parameters in place as far as church funds. There's a lot of churches that I think if people were to see how they manage their church funds, they would be horrified because mm. there is no organization. Um, what, what help us out? What are some practical ways that churches can take to safeguard the management, the organization and the use of church funds? This is a good one. I think that, you know, when I, took over the pastorate here, one of the things I thought immediately is that everything should be in dual control. And that comes more from the banking background. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, sometimes people get the idea that, um, you know, you don't trust me. That's why I can't make the deposit by myself. Uh, I do trust you. And dual control has nothing to do with the people you don't trust. It's the people that you do trust that you don't want accusations to come out. Right. Yeah. And it's why we have boundaries in our life, generally speaking, right? Whether they're moral boundaries, uh, you know, that we keep because we want to make sure that we, with our most trusted people, aren't getting accusations. uh, And we want to also protect ourselves from temptations, you know, that, that can arise. So I think it's healthy to make sure that we think about having dual control. We should have written procedures. Uh, of of how it's to be done. I think if possible, do as many transactions online. Uh, I, I know it can be expensive. Uh, transaction fees are not fees that people want to pay. And in fact, I think that when first online giving came out, uh, a lot of sort of, I guess you can call it the old school way of doing ministry, 
when you're just used to cutting a check, taking in cash, really uh, look down at that because of the fees. But I would say if you can try to drive as many contributions online, I think it creates the best record for the church, the best record for, uh, you know, the giver. Uh, I think that the fee is relatively small. Uh, I don't like paying for a light bill. I don't like paying for heating in a church. But the reality is, is that those are things that we enjoy as conveniences. Uh, and online giving is the same thing. Uh, so uh, as much as possible, even after the pandemic, we have not passed a plate in our church uh, since before the pandemic. Actually, two weeks ago, we did, and it was for a special offering. And I had to dust them off real quick as I ran back there uh, because I just felt led to take a special offering for, um, a, you know, a family that came through uh, doing some ministry. So it's just interesting because we're encouraging more and more to give online. I think it's just the best way to do it. So those are just, uh, I would say, some 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 tips to keep in mind. Uh, another thing, as I mentioned, is that if you can get professional help, you should. If you're listening in right now and you are looking for some help with your books, maybe you're a church plant, maybe you are an established church, um, if you pay an accountant to take care of your books full time, it's very expensive. There are even uh, better ways to look at it. Uh, Bench actually is a company you can look up. Bench Accounting. Uh, we use them personally. They give you all your financial reporting. They're also a second set of eyes. They'll give you um, the year end reporting. And it's all online cloud based. You can check out financial reporting on your cell phone. Uh, you, you can see all of this and it's a way that when you do budget meetings, when you meet with your team, you have everything professionally handled. Of course, we still have a bookkeeper here that helps with transactions and, you know, having it properly categorized, it makes a world of difference, especially in the future. If you have bigger plans, uh, you're asking for bigger donations uh, for building projects, anything to that nature. You want to make sure that you have full transparency, you know what's going on. Uh, expenses are being categorized correctly. Those are all helpful tools, I believe. And I know that there are other companies out there, but they've seemed to work well for us. And uh, I would say a church should not be ashamed of paying the extra fees to have professional advice and help. And I think, unfortunately, I've seen too many things done, for lack of a better word, in a chintzy way to just get by. And you should always hire professional help because you get what you pay for. Yeah, yeah, right. It's, we understand this in other aspects of life. I don't go to the store and be like, give me your cheapest pair of shoes. I will right. take the cheapest car on your lot. <laughs> I will buy the cheapest home on the market. No, we, Some will. <laughs> Some do. Right. But right, we say, okay, well, let me look at the cost and then let me look at the benefit. If the value's there, then I'll be willing to pay that price. And that's how you have to look at anything. And, and even as a ministry, you have to look at it that way. Like, yeah, nobody... Ideally, we'd love for everybody to do things for us for free, but that's not how the world works. So if the value's there, then certainly that's the right choice for the church. Yep. You were mentioning dual control. That, that took me right back. Being the bank, that's like, that's the Bible, the, the procedures, right. the dual control. I remember there was a, a lady at our um, the branch I worked at in Pittsburgh for a little while. Uh, she was like, by the book, if the procedures mm -hmm. say this, I'm going to do it exactly right. And, our, and it was funny because our manager was the guy who was like, 
well, you know, it's, it's, it's all right. I understand the spirit of what that is, you know? So he was the one who was like a little bit more loose. Uh, and she was like, no, we're doing it by the book. But you're right. It's not because necessarily, oh, I don't trust the people around me, but there needs to be accountability and it's for everybody's protection. So that yeah. if there were to be an accusation, if there were to be a question, we're, we're looking out for each other. And that's, that's really important. Um, backing up to kind of your your story moving from finance into your the role as a pastor now was there an overlap there 2015 to about 2018 were you you were working at the bank but you were also serving at the church correct were you did you have the title of like assistant pastor or was it just more of in a volunteer capacity yeah associate pastor and essentially the pastor allowed me to co-pastor with him Mm -hmm. Uh, the church knew in 2015 i was voted in as the lead pastor, uh, knowing that within three to five years, the lead pastor would be transitioning into a different form of ministry and retiring uh, from the church here. So uh, during that time, the church was fully aware that I would be their next pastor. And of course, I I did many of the duties uh, as I did ministry before I came to Bible Baptist Church. I was seven years full-time as a youth pastor and an assistant pastor. And I was not bivocational then, but uh, it was after that period of time that I did go back into ministry and took more of a bivocational role. And I did that uh, on purpose. It allowed me to meet some objectives for my family. The pastor did ask if I wanted to come on full time. It was a personal decision that, uh, that I made that I feel uh, was good for the church because the pastor was still full time. It helped uh, with our budget. And I believe it helped us to meet the objectives of buying a home, getting established here. And uh, it helped me to get to know the community because while I'm from the Northwest, uh, the peninsula is a very different culture over here. It's a little more rural, slower pace. I'm more from, you know, the greater Seattle area. And it allowed, and even where I was in Bremerton, it's, it's somewhere in between. So I did get the lay of the land a bit. Got to know the area. It gave me great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, like from so from that season of working both regular job, working in ministry, bivocational. Um, I mean, what what advice would you give for guys who are in that space, thinking about going that direction? A lot of guys, by you know, just maybe by necessity because their church doesn't have the budget to pay them full time or um, and then some, sometimes just by choice, they decide, you know, I, I think it's just best for me and my family if I'm working this job and also serving the church. But what advice would you would you give based on your own experience in doing that? I would say don't allow yourself to think that full time paid ministry is the pinnacle of your calling. OK, so let me just reiterate that there's this idea that full time paid ministry is really the high point of ministry. And I see that sometimes even in assistant pastors or part-time youth pastors, those that just don't have a full-time paid capacity, I cannot wait till I am a full-time paid pastor because then I will have arrived. Um, Let me say this, that it was a hard decision in 2018 for me to quit my job at the bank. That might sound silly to some people, but I enjoyed my job. I, if, if tomorrow 
let's say the pandemic did not go well for our church, which by God's grace, everything's gone well. We provided for all of our staff, provided for my family. I was ready and willing. And even still, if at any time there was anything that threatened the finances of our church, I would tomorrow, I probably have 10 plus contacts that I can call and probably have a job next week. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't burn bridges. I keep a good network. I try to be a good testimony. I want to know who's still in. I walk into branches still today and I can tell who is at what bank, what they're doing. Like I stay in touch with people. I think that's important. Yeah. Uh, and to me, there's great uh, fulfillment in knowing that part of being a provider for my family is not just trying to fulfill the career path of being a pastor. Uh, I fear that some people go into ministry straight from Bible college as though the ministry is a profession or a career to be had rather than the privilege to be paid and the opportunity to be paid to do something that you just love to do. Um, You know, we don't hear too much that the Apostle Paul was a tent maker, or Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers, or Jesus was a carpenter, or, you know, the list goes on of people that had a profession. In fact, most Jewish communities, uh, even if they do white collar work, they're still uh, trained in a trade of some sort or a specialized skill. And this is the way it's done in greater part of the world. Only in America do you just pick one trade, you know, after high school and then have nothing else to fall back on. And especially in ministry, I find that to be the case. And uh, it's, it's very sad. The only way of really generating more income is to become a better speaker, you know, a more dynamic speaker uh, in, in some way. And then to be able to, you know, travel as much as you can. And, and for some, obviously, I mean, your dad, for example, is a very gifted speaker. Uh, he, he is an anomaly. You know, most people, though, they're like, someone, please, someone, please call me out. I need to make more income, you know, and uh, and it's just it, it's interesting, though, that I see this happen all the time. So for me, I wanted to remain in finance and I really enjoyed it. But I also recognized I'm a dad. I'm a husband in this season of life. So sometimes think of it this way. Sometimes it's seasonal. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't want to be a full-time pastor and, and to be paid that you should always be bivocational. That's not my point. My point is that you shouldn't think that it's just the pinnacle of your calling. And if you're like most pastors and you work outside the pastor, you should feel blessed that you have the opportunity to make that extra income and to impact people in the real world. And I would say that's the key point is that God is using you where you are. And every message that you preach about uh, making sure that people are being an example in their sphere of influence, that boy, it must be so hard to, you know, come to church in the middle of the week because you're hearing curse words fly out of people's mouths or just living in the world, you're getting beat up by the world and then you have no idea what it's like to actually walk in their shoes. You have no idea what it's like to be around people, to be around a corporate atmosphere. And some people might think like, yeah, but you know, Pastor Jeremy, you worked in white collar business. I'm telling you what, like the white collar world is just as crooked as the blue collar world or any other part of the world. I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just the devil dressed up in a suit, which is also yeah. why even uh, for my conservative roots that uh, I have a hard time. I don't just put on a tie and a suit and just think that, 
well, that's just what churchy people do. No, that's what people do on Wall Street that swindle people out of millions of dollars as well. So yeah. it's not about and, the cut of suit. usually or avoid any... jail time for doing it. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So I would say, you know, um, I think it's wise for pastors to have a skill set or a trade that extends beyond the local church. Otherwise, the ministry can become, a, you know, some kind of a career. Um, and just too many pastors are out of touch with cultural issues because most of their waking hours, unfortunately, are in a church office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 30 years goes by and they call everyone else a prude and they just don't understand. And the truth is they don't understand the pastor. Wow. That was, uh, so a lot of wisdom in that. That was, that let was me say that, go ahead. Yeah. Let me say this too. I would say if you're not bivocational, if you're a pastor, listen to this, you're full time, you've got a good church behind you that's supporting you. Praise the Lord. Be thankful for that. Be willing to do whatever it takes though, to take care of your family, your church, the situation that uh, may arise and realize whether you're bivocational or not, they may just be seasonal times. So don't expect the rest of your life. You're just going to be taken care of. It could be seasonal. So if you're bivocational, you're trying to get full time. It's a season of time. Now, when you are full time, now, now if you're listening and you're full time, do this, find an organization to volunteer for. Okay. So most of my time, I I'm sitting in my office right now. And I don't spend a lot of time in this office. I'll be honest with you. I feel sorry for my assistants because most of the time they're probably wondering where's pastor. And they know like anytime they get in touch with me, you know, we have different um, project management software that we use to stay in touch. You know, we use text messaging, a lot of things that the pandemic forced on us that I actually enjoy. And plus I'm introverted a little more. So uh, it all just, it's my management style. But I don't spend a lot of time coming in and out of the office. I actually frequent a lot of coffee shops. I'm on the board of a nonprofit organization. I'm a South Kitsap, you know, um, fire chaplain. I try to know what's going on in the community. So if you are full-time and you're a pastor, find a way to be involved in the community so you expose yourself to the people. That's what I would say. Yeah, that's, that's great. There, there has to be proactive effort on the part of the pastor, especially if he's not working a job outside of the church to where he's tethered to the reality of what his church people are going through on a day-to-day basis. Yes. Very quickly, you can lose sight of that. You feel like, man, what are these people doing? And because you don't know what it's, what they're going through on a weekly basis, you're in this bubble and uh, that's, that's really good. We talked earlier about, okay, maybe some things that you learned being in the world of finance that help you in your role now. But on the flip side of that, you were just kind of alluding to, Hey, um, People that are in the white collar business, they, they still have their issues too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of being in the American culture that we're in is we pastors, church leaders, we often want to borrow from corporate wisdom. We want to borrow from contemporary wisdom in the areas of leadership and organization. And that's fine. But then sometimes the temptation is we're going to import all of that stuff and we're going to run our church like a business mm-hmm. and it's not a business. So how do we navigate that? How do we learn from the corporate world without mimicking it in the church? Yeah. So there's a couple of things here. Um, of course, number one, I think what we could learn from the corporate world is that we should try to find a way of investing uh, our savings that's more earmarked for long-term savings. I see too many times you know, hundred thousand, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars just sit in account and not being put to work in some way. 
And I feel like churches can do a better job in uh, investing in appropriate funds for longer term savings. Uh, I, I mentioned this earlier, and I can't overemphasize it enough that churches should hire professionals to help them, experts to help them. I appreciate what you're doing, Nate, because you're taking a calling and you're merging this love for finance and your love for those in the ministry and trying to find how they complement each other. And that's what this conversation's all about. And I think that you are a type of expert that can help bridge that gap. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, finance is so broad. Uh, if you were to ask me, people think that because I have a background in finance that suddenly I'm a, a Bitcoin expert, right? I know everything that there is to know about crypto. I know everything there is to know about currencies and commodities. I know everything there is to know about accounting. But there's so much to know in the world in the area of finance and all of this takes place within our nonprofit organization. So you need to hire accountants, you know, payroll, you make sure you understand how a budget works, financial reporting, how to at least read them on a basic level because you're making team decisions and you need to make sure you know what that looks like. And if you don't know, then get in touch with someone like Nate, uh, begin, you know, uh, reading books, get familiar with it. Again, it doesn't have to be your favorite thing to do, but understand that if you are a pastor and you're leading people and the local church, which is an organization as well as an organism, then we need to make sure that we have a basic level understanding of that because we are held accountable for the stewardship of that. So I think that they, that they do that very well. But on the flip side, I think that there are some dangers in trying to model uh, our church is like a business. Um, attempting to, of course, take on too much risk can be a problem. One of the issues of new churches, growing churches, our church is going through a growth phase right now. We're about to start renovations on our church here this month, actually. And the only thing that saddens my heart is that we're 85% capacity on a Sunday and we're not doing anything to increase our capacity. We're only trying to maintain some things. And now it, go, it goes in my mind, is it building more, bigger, more, you know, bigger campus, another property, you know, millions of dollars, or I mean, do I need to talk someone into becoming a missionary? Like you need to go out, uh, we need to send people. It's the, these are struggles of growing churches, which th these are good struggles. I mean, these are good growth pains to have, but understand that uh, you can take on too much risk for the sake of we have to do this. The reality is, is that you don't have to do anything. You need to slow down, make decisions and get a lot of counsel. Surround yourself with a lot of counselors. And the Bible says when you do that, there's safety in that. So make sure that you have good counselors, uh, make sure you get good wisdom and don't take on too much risk because over leveraging by using debt to build new assets, buildings, all of these things uh, will actually limit your ability to communicate and effectively preach when all you're thinking about is, did we have enough people on Sunday? Uh, what were the offerings like? And I can tell you right now that uh, while I still get an email uh, every week on what the offerings are, I don't even remember if the emails missed because I don't, you know, with bated breath trying to figure out like what the offerings were. And that's a good feeling. Yes. But if there's ever a time where my stomach turns because they're short a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars, and we've got a building to pay off, 
Um, boy, and then it compounds if you've got a Christian school, if you've got a college, and boy, it's it hurts. And so I would say, don't over leverage yourself because you're not a corporation when it comes to that. You know, the expectation is not there. And by the way, if you continue growing, you're just going to have to revisit the situation over and over again. And uh, I think that ultimately that's why we need to send people into ministry. And um, naturally people leave too. And we have to be okay with that. We have to allow God to, to move people where they should. And, uh, and, and, and the Lord works all of that out. So don't over leverage yourself by using debt to build, you know, new assets and, and, and bigger buildings all the time. Sometimes it's necessary. Um, but don't, don't, take that bait all the time. Yeah, I totally agree. We, we have a tendency to want to look at growth or success just by numerical sets. Mm-hmm. Or is the giving more than it was last year? Is the attendance more? What about this program? What, and there's a, there's a place for that. I, I think you know there probably are examples of churches that don't care about those and that's to mm-hmm. their detriment. But that's not the only way that we measure growth. And actually, it's not a way to even measure the most important growth, which can't be measured by metrics. And so, right, not losing sight of that. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeremy, man, there's, there's some more questions I wanted to ask you. But I, I think for sake of time, we're, we're going to just try to wrap it up there. Man, you shared some great ideas, some really practical things, too, I think, for pastors to learn from, from your experience. Um, why don't we do this before we go? Tell, tell people where they can connect with you. Tell them about your YouTube channel as well. Oh, sure. So, uh, you can check me out on YouTube at Jeremy Scott de Spain. I run uh, a channel, actual faith, uh, try to help, uh, both Christians and sometimes unbelievers with big questions about God, theology, and, um, actual faith is really a ministry to help those that are trying to understand faith. I have this saying that actual faith is trusting and believing the unknown because of the known. And this is something I'm very passionate about. So many believe that faith is sort of this blind leap into the darkness when we know, especially coming up around the corner with Easter that we're celebrating the resurrection. And there's great evidence and great reason for why we believe what we believe. So I spend quite a bit of time directly answering some questions within a, you know, five to 10 minute segment. And uh, I also do some long form content with some interviews, sort of like what you're doing right now with atheists, with agnostics, also with believers, uh, and even with some Christians that have varying viewpoints for myself uh, and, and really trying to get to the core of what essential Christianity is. So maybe it'll be a help to your listeners. Uh, and I'm thankful that I could be on today. And uh, I hope that uh, we'll be able to, to chat again. Maybe I'll have you on my channel and, and talk to you a bit about your background as well. Yeah, man, Jeremy, I, I really appreciate it. It's been great. Um, you, you shared a lot of helpful stuff. I hope folks will, will connect with you. Check out your YouTube channel. It sounds like some great stuff over there. Okay, thanks everybody for listening and I'll, I'll see you on the next episode.